Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Impact Podcast. Listen on for insights into philanthropy, impact investing and sustainability. We were having too much of a fun conversation. Then, so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Fantasy Impact's Walking My Shoes series for our members. Today, we are doing something slightly different from our normal discussions. As a catalytic organisation in this space, Philanthropy Impact works hard to ensure we are innovative and forward-looking by nature. And so today, we are talking to Eleanor Winton, who's the founder of Foresightfully, to learn more about how exploring alternative futures and building an inclusive vision of the future is the key to better business, and how that can be applied to philanthropy and creating impact. My name is Sophia Sahanik and I'm the Director of Membership and Development here at Philanthropy Impact and the person to talk to if you'd like to know more about our training and how to make the most of your membership with us. You can reach me in the chat or my email is shared at the end if you're watching on our YouTube channel. As always, we keep this discussion strictly to 30 minutes, so we do encourage you to use the chat to introduce yourselves, share your LinkedIn profile, make comments and also please today um, post questions to our speaker. And it was it was great pleasure now that I hand over to John who's going to make a start. Thank you John. Uh, thank you Sophia. Uh, Eleanor, thank you for doing this. It's really wonderful pleasure. <laughs> to participate in this. Uh, we will uh, send this out uh, in our bi-weekly to all our contacts and etc etc. So um, our purpose is pretty straightforward. It's to increase philanthropic giving and to encourage and uh, increase impact in ESG. Um, investment. And our focus is on professional advisors to high net worth and ultra high net worth people across uh, Europe. So that's private client advisors, wealth managers, private banking, legal tax, etc. So as we go through this, as, uh, as you talk about uh, what you've been doing, if you can keep that context uh, so that you can share with them. Uh, so what the future is going to hold for advisors, etc, etc. <laughs> So maybe we can start off by, uh, could you talk a bit about who you are and how you sure. got to where you are and what your journey has been? Yeah, absolutely. So um, today, so I, I run a business called Foresightfully, as you said. So, um, and the purpose of that business really is to help leaders and leadership teams within organizations to really think differently about what the future holds and then build, build a plan that acknowledges that the future is not going to stay uh, stay stay steady um, or stay still, but that you need to continually adapt. And actually, um, it's really helping people to engage with that need to be constantly agile and really understand what the organization does and, and what value it adds. Um, I kind of came to that through a sort of probably slightly odd route, really, uh, John, which was to come from uh, an early career, which was really in hindsight. So um, I trained as a lawyer and then I spent about 10 years doing investigations work. So uh, investigating conduct of legal professionals, uh, investigating fraud and money laundering and all of those things. <clears throat> and my kind of, after about 10 years of doing that, it became really obvious that hindsight's all well and good, but if you can't predict, if you can't stop the problem from happening in the future, then you've only really done 20% of your job. You know, the, the real value is in helping clients to avoid those things happening again. Um, and so at that point, I flipped into an innovation role. And this was um, at KPMG. 
Again, barriers uh, that we uncovered there was that, you know, in trying to get people to be innovative, they have to understand why there's it's worth taking the risk of changing their behavior and doing things differently. Um, and so that's where the foresight piece comes in, the, the, the future piece, which is that um, for most individuals and organizations to, to want to change, they have to understand that there's a burning platform for change. Um, and so understanding what the future might hold, understanding uh, trends, understanding where disruption might come from is really key to giving you that platform to do things differently and to persuade all of your various stakeholders, whether that's investors or whether it's members or or whoever those stakeholders might be. So, so yeah, today I spend really all of my time working usually with the leadership team, but but doing that piece of really shaking up the way that they think um, but then helping them to be strategic about how they can innovate, but also mitigate risk uh, as they move forward. So are you working primarily with the uh, staff, uh, senior management people, or are you working with boards as well? It's boards as well. Yeah, it's, it's a mix. It slightly depends on the size of the client, but um, usually uh, usually that will be the start point. So it will be the CEO or the head of strategy or sometimes HRD who will get in touch with me and say, we, we think we're not doing enough to understand that future picture. And then we'll start working with the board and then move around inside the organization, depending on where the need arises. So what kind of organizations do you work with? Then? Well, a real mix. So it's funny. It's um, it's one of those things that that. You know, the, the, I think we all have a view, don't we, that the, the, the future for our own organization is going to be really, really specific. But of course, in reality, most of the trends as they occur impact multiple sectors or at the very least, they impact our whole sector before they filter down to us. So that they, I, I feel like I sort of sit in the middle and pivot between lots of different industries, lots of different types of clients, um, primarily big corporates. But I do do a bit with charities, I do a bit with government um, a bit with membership organizations as well. Um, but it's the 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 kind of the, the the thin end of the wedge, if you like, is is pretty much the same where whichever sector you're operating in. And so that the work that we then do together is how do how do we tailor that for our specific sector and organization and really you know get those bits that are sticky that we can act on. So mostly large corporations. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um uh, we work with large corporations, professional advisory corporations, but we also work with philanthropists uh, yep. and charities, etc. Did you see any difference between uh, working with a large organization and working with a charity? I know your experience with charities is limited, but uh, yeah. have you seen any? <laughs> well, it's, it's very limited experience. So we're talking about a handful of charities. So, I, I, you know, I, these are just from my limited experience. I'll just kind of put that preface around uh, these observations. But, you know, my sense has been, as with so many things in the way that we operate, um, we tend to operate in our own little world, in our own little silo. And my, my experience of working with the two those two categories of organization is that on the charity side, you've, you've got a real engagement around purpose and value, um, but perhaps not enough rigor around some of the process um, to actually you know, build strategy and act on that. Um, it's often smaller charities that I've been working with. And on the corporate side, there's perhaps so much rigor around the process uh, and so much of a feeling of you know, accountability to shareholders, as you and I were discussing earlier, John, that that they that the board feel that their hands are maybe a wee bit tied, uh, and so they're they're less comfortable taking risk. And often there can be a, a disconnect between all of that process and then the values and purpose of the organisation. It's um it's still something that surprises me that there are still many organisations that I think don't really have a view of what their purpose is or what value 
they deliver to the world <laughs> and yeah. that's a bit that's a bit of a problem um so yeah, a lot of the work that I do is is yeah it's challenging those two perspectives really or trying to bring them together okay um so uh, organizational change is not an easy thing to do <laughs> um and uh, do you have a lot of bruises yeah well it's one of these things you know and I think you and I talked about this previously that um you have to be you have to be prepared if you're gonna if you're gonna try to um, help people to think differently and act differently. You have to be prepared for some pushback. Um, and but I think that's the nature of the the work. So I think for me, the most of the people that I know that do similar similar work, we over-index on sort of energy really, um, and we get a lot of energy from each other because you need to keep getting back up again after those knocks. But but it's interesting. That's one of the one of the interesting shifts that's probably happened over the last 10 years or so since I've been doing this work that actually, you know, at the beginning, I, I was in rooms of people saying, oh, my goodness, how many people do you think there are on the planet today? And people would, wouldn't have a clue, you know. And over time, a lot of that information about the planet and the connections between what businesses do and the impact that they have has become much more clear. Um, and as we've moved towards the world of ESG and so on, we started to get a clearer picture of the connection between the actions that we're taking in business and and the link to the outside world. And that's really helped from my perspective um, to 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 push. You know, it makes it easier to push because people have heard a lot of the stuff before and they understand that there's a need to do something. And the other thing that's really helped is COVID because there's a realized risk that uh, if you'd asked people before COVID, do you think this will happen? Everyone would have said absolutely no way. Uh, but but having seen it happen, having collectively had to respond to it, I think helps um, people to feel that, that some of these other big future is issues are more real. Uh, and hopefully that helps. I don't know if you're finding the same thing, but hopefully that helps people to um, engage with them more or at least start to plan around them rather than sort of like burying their head in the sand and hoping that they won't happen. So it's interesting, though, because a lot of organizations, when you're looking at bringing change, hmm. if you think people think in terms of the organization and work within those boundaries of the organization, so it's hmm. difficult for them to push those boundaries out. So how do you get them to push those boundaries out? Well, I really push people to think differently about the organization and exactly as you're describing. So we often tend to plan for the future from the inside out. So we take our organization as it is today and we, we sort of increment that forward. Um, and, and what we need to do instead is, is go, go out to the future and come back. And as we come back towards our organization, whatever that time frame is, whether that's 5, 10, 15, depends what sector and industry you're in and so on. But as we then kind of, as we sort of zoom out and then zoom back into our own business, we need to come through the sector lens um, and really understand what are the dynamics of the sector that we're operating in uh, and where is value created, accrued, all of those things. Um, so the cat's just appeared through <laughs> the cat um, the, um, it, you know, Where is value created? What are the assumptions around it? All of those things. Because if we understand that, we get a better picture of what might happen to us in the future because we start to pick up on the signals. And that's been, that's been a really powerful tool um, to get people to think differently. So how do you get them to think about the future? Because again, they're still stuck on a day-to-day -day thing. They're still yeah. busy at trying to um, uh, be successful and stuff. So it, it's still yeah. getting to think in the future. What tools do you use? 
Well, I try to make it as real as possible. So obviously you can do that with data and really immerse, immersing people in information. But I actually thought, I've got an example for you here of a, a prop that's really helpful. So um, this is something that- It's um, not your cat, right? You're not it's not the cat. cat, no, the cat's down here getting very, getting very grumpy. Um, it's, uh, so back in, and this is something that I've, I've used to use about sort of eight or nine years ago. So eight or nine years ago, um, we were starting to realize that meat, um, uh, that consumption around the world was really damaging for the planet. You know, there's huge kind of carbon footprint, all of those things. So, so how could we help clients, you know, these executive team members who were probably quite detached from uh, the, the, some, of the, some of these trends as they were emerging and changes in consumer behavior and so on in a, a traditional corporate non-retail, how can we make this feel real? So we got these, which are, um, if you can see, these are... Um, deep fried uh, salted caramel flavor crickets, um, which we, crickets. crickets, crickets, because of course, one of the big trends around the future of food back then was insect protein. So insect protein was starting to make its way into the market. We had EXO, which was a crowdfunded uh, insect protein bar, um, and they were trying to disrupt that market. But when we would talk about it, of course, people in, sitting around a boardroom table would say, well, I, I would never eat insects, particularly in the West, right? That's not, it's not something that feels normal to us. So, so yeah, we would bring these insects into the, into the boardroom and have people eat them and then have a conversation about, you know, does that change their view? Is this different from what they expected? Where might there be a market for this? And actually what's been really interesting in this space is that we've seen the, the, the initial attempt was to try to break into the protein market for humans, but the success has been in the protein market for animals. Um, but again, if you had engaged with that trend at the time and sought to invest perhaps in a sort of circular insect protein farm, for example, then you could have made a lot of money <laughs> and had a lot of impact. But you know, it's, it's trying to get people into the headspace of thinking, well, I, I currently don't think this is realistic or for me personally, or for us, this doesn't feel like something that's real. So how do we get them into a headspace where they start to see that change happens really, really quickly? Uh, and actually our expectations are often based on false assumptions that we need to challenge. So that's just one of the ways that- What do you mean by that false assumptions? Well, we, so we, what we tend to have is when we think about our own business and our own sector, we don't, what we don't think about is the rules that exist behind, you know, the, the rules of the sector, which are basically our assumptions about value. No one will eat insects in the West. There's a great example, you know, um, that will never sell. Um, the, the, uh, the, you can imagine the kind of, you know, in the professional services world, for example, if, if, you, if I was still at KPMG turning up to a pitch and there would be all the other big four there and maybe there'd be a little digital agency there as well. And you'd be thinking, well, I mean, they're never going to win the pitch <laughs> because they don't know what we know. I mean, we're, we're big professional services firms. We've got all this experience and they would win the pitch because they, they'd properly engaged with what the client wanted to, to do. And they'd stop making those assumptions. You know, they challenge thinking. So I think we have to be, um, we have to start to shake as, as particularly as the pace of change. Sorry, that's my cat meowing at me. As the pace of change accelerates, you know, we really do need to start to engage with that more. Um, and the fact that these things can change quickly. And, and step one of doing that is, is actually sitting down and saying, what are the rules and assumptions of our sector, our industry, our business? And, and then how do we go about challenging them?
So the issue for charities or nonprofit organizations or mm. sector, whatever you want to call them, mm. is they don't have the same resources as a company with a large organization would have. Yeah. Uh, so how, how, how would you address that? So for example, our philanthropy impact, uh, we're extremely ambitious. So yeah. we are trying to change the culture and the behavior of the advisory marketplace of all the mm -hmm. different groupings I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to do achieve two things. Uh, but both of them building on the fact that millennials, Gen Z, women of wealth, and even older generations now want to live their values through their investments or through their philanthropy or both. So uh, we want to uh, have professional advisory firms support their uh, clients on their donor journey, yep. uh, which means being proactive. Um, which is a really big shift yeah. and then, uh, from the other side is um, around impact investing and the whole issue of suitability. So yeah. what are my values? How yeah. do, what are my ambitions? How do I live those through my investments and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what free advice can you give us to achieve that? And well, yeah, listen, I, you know, I think it's such a great point because the, 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 I think the biggest thing we need to develop is actually something that's free, you know, as, as leaders, as people operating in this environment. Um, and actually, the, the, the phrase was coined by um, Tom Friedman, which is this idea of, of building our CQ or our curiosity quotient. So, uh, you know, if, if leadership was all about IQ in the 80s, then in the 90s, you know, we, we had EQ and we realized it would be good to be nice people, you know, we could understand other humans, that would be helpful. Maybe where we are today is that we need to build CQ because fundamentally, most of what's happening, if we are curious enough about it early enough, then we can adapt cheaply. The expensive adaptation comes if we are too late. You know, if, if we if we fail to see the disruption coming, uh, or we fail to see a new opportunity until five other people are all over that opportunity. So that's that's the free thing. I think I would really um, that I would really engage with. You know, thinking is free. So the more that we could, the more that we can engage with curiosity, talk to each other within the organisation, ask curious questions, genuinely curious questions about you know why we're here what we're doing what's out there um and 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 really trying to build um a, a kind of body of insight as a result of that then then the more able we are to take advantage of those opportunities because most of the time john you know these these disruptors are they're they're not well resourced you know in the first instance they've got nothing you know they're just asking a different question um should I, can I give you another example just to show you? Oh, so, yeah, okay, so I brought another prop, which is... Yeah, um, it's really so, nice to see all your toys. <laughs> it's just a helpful way to tell the story. So, so if you think about the um, drinks industry, so very, very long established industry, big players like the Diageos of the world, uh, and many of these industries have been around, you know, uh, forever. So if, if we talk about the Scotch whiskey industry, for example, it's been around since I think the... 1500s or earlier um it's uh basically the same process now as it was then you know we get some alcohol we put it in a barrel we stick it in a shed and you know 25 years later we pour it out and hopefully it's delicious you know uh, and that's been the model there's been some some uh, sort of technological adapt adaptation over time where instead of you know, handwriting a label on a barrel in a shed. We have a QR code instead, you know, some little tinkering around the edges. Um, but about five years ago, two students in the US, they said, look, it's really expensive. Whiskey's really expensive. You know, it's really expensive. We, we can't afford it as students. And actually, we don't really see why we're paying 
you know, £100 or $100, $200 for a bottle of Johnny Walker Black or whatever. Um, I want to now. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I think it's expensive. You always see it in the GC Free, don't you, Johnny Walker? Um, that's the, I think that's priced for the American market. But, um, oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's a great example of where that industry just functions on those assumptions. You know, people mm-hmm. will pay for heritage and brand and history and all of that stuff. And so these two guys said, well, hang on. Maybe we could ask a different question. You know, maybe instead of putting the whiskey in the barrel, maybe we could put the barrel in the whiskey. Maybe that would make it a quicker process. And so that's what they did. So they created this, which is called a whiskey element. Um, and it's, uh, let me take it out and show you. It's a wooden stick, um, which which has the same effect. So that same sort of osmosis effect, but what they've got is lots and lots of surface area built into this. And with this, what you can do is go and buy a bottle of cheap whiskey, non-branded Tesco value whiskey or, or similar, pop this in it, leave it for 24 hours. And when you pour it out the next day, it will taste like a single malt. No, it won't taste like a single malt. Well, apparently so. It's been taste tested. They're doing them for wine now as well, you know. You're Um, taking away my dreams. (laughs) I'll send you one in the post. You could have a bit of a play because it works for the great thing about this is that, you know, you could you then as a so it it challenges all sorts of assumptions in the sector. So first of all, the assumption that that time has translated into financial value uh, or cost, you know. Mm. Secondly, that heritage is important, that it has to come, the whiskey has to come from Scotland and it has to come from a brand that's well known. Um, Thirdly, that the consumer, you know, the the, the value chain in that industry uh, is stops at the distributor. There's very little engagement with the end consumer. Usually there's a supermarket or some kind of supplier in the way. And Mm. all of that consumer value is taken by others. Uh, And so what this is saying is that actually, the, um, the consumer is holds all the power here to experiment with the product. And so they can create their own blend. You know, when friends come around for dinner, there's all this new value that's being unlocked there. Now, this is never going to uh, challenge the current industry, right? Because these, these assumptions, or not now anyway, these assumptions are really, really ingrained. But it's a great, it's a great lesson in how different thinking can make us realize that those assumptions that we have aren't necessarily valid. You know, they're built on hundreds of years of experience rather than seeing future value. So so just to interrupt for a second. Mm, so yeah, in, mm. in the sector that we deal with, professional mm-hmm. advisory firms, mm-hmm. you have habit. It's habit goes back and back yeah, and back yeah, and back yeah. and how you relate to clients. Yeah, and yeah. for some, you don't talk to them about their personal stuff except yeah. the minimum. So mm-hmm. and if you're going to really engage with people today like millennials and things yeah um, you're going to have to talk about their values their motivations their ambitions their vision how yeah. they want to live their lives how they want what their money is for and all that kind of yeah, stuff absolutely. So, yeah absolutely so what we do is that we talk to them about what uh millennials and women of wealth are doing so for example we give one example a person who advisors were very traditional, tried to get them to change, they wouldn't change, so she fired them. Mm. Well, that's sort of <laughs> the point across, isn't it? But, but there's still a gigantic industry, and so we've got a lot of habits to break in a way. Definitely. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, I remember someone uh, once telling me that, you know, there, there were three, you know, it was a director of lots of different change programs, that there are three groups of people in any organization, you know, the ones that get it, 
the ones that could get it and the ones that will never get it. And so, you know, you're, you always should be focusing on the top two. <laughs> that's where you should place your efforts. And yeah. if you, you want to get rid of that bottom layer, then, you know, uh, that's an option as well. But I, but I think it's, it's again, it's back to that point about engaging with 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 your curiosity, isn't it? You know, I think if um, if we're having different, uh, genuinely curious conversations with clients, then I think we're still valued as advisors. But I think if we're just trying to to hawk existing products um, uh, or or to match problem A with with product A, then that's probably not going to last. I, I know we don't have a lot of time left. This has mm. gone too quickly. Uh, <laughs> so I have a couple of other questions, but like in three seconds, can yeah. you tell me how you get someone to be curious? Well, so I actually tell them to just change their habits. So, you know, in a world where we, um, you know, get up and switch on our computer, read something different, uh, you know, drink a different beverage for your breakfast, you know, stop drinking your same old breakfast, coffee and whatever. Do something to change up your routine, because even that tiny little change will fire different connections in your brain and you'll start to see things differently. You know, okay. read a different paper, get on the train on a different carriage, not the sort of Reginald Perrin, same carriage every day sort of thing. Just those little things will start to shake things up. Okay, I get accused of doing that too often. Um, <laughs> yeah, You're I a disruptor, that's yeah, the problem. You go into the office and say, oh, I have this idea. Uh, and you go, oh, no. Uh, not another one. <laughs> no, no, not another one. Oh, I've been to this conference. I have this idea. Anyway, okay, so uh, do you consider yourself a futurist then? Well, I, I don't like that term, really, because I think um, I think it's sort of one of the assumptions that often goes along with it is that the future can be predicted. You know, it, it can't be. None of us knows what the future holds. All we can do is engage with what the drivers of change are, really. Um, and so so in terms of what I do, it's much less about telling a story about the future and much more about engaging people with thinking about it. So, so that moving from a kind of a short-term view to a long-term view and being much more creative and imaginative really about the future. Okay, so um, I'm gonna switch a tiny bit here. Don't play with yeah. Okay, so <laughs> everyone's talking about technology yeah. and technology going to bring change. So you have augmented reality, you have AI, you have virtual reality, um, you have artificial intelligence, well, I mentioned that. Yeah, the but metaverse, also, all of that. Yeah, the metaverse, <laughs> and also in the future, potentially impacts of, of quantum uh, mm -hmm. computing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have all that. So that's pretty mm -hmm. obvious to most people that, that these mm -hmm. things potentially would have. But yeah. on the other side, the human side, um, what trends are there, other than the stuff that we're trying to do around values and stuff, but what trends are there that are not counterbalancing that, but will support it and reinforce it or complement it. So there's a really interesting um, piece of thinking on this from Eric Teller, um, who's former, uh, or he's the CEO of what used to be Google X and what is now X. And, and I'm gonna try and draw something with my hands on the screen here to, to bring it to life. So if you imagine that this is the pace of change over time on this axis, and then, oh, sorry, this pace of change over time um, along the bottom, Technological change is doing that, isn't it? Really rapid exponential change, you know, to, you know, thinking about computing power, as you say, John. So, you know, to, to all of the power of all of the brains on the planet for the cost of a thousand dollars, you know, that I think that's the point that we're at now. But if that's the pace of technological change, then the, the pace of human adaptability is sort of snailing along uh, underneath, you know, it's a much, much slower curve. So so the, the, key, the key thing that we now need to do is to, 
is to govern smarter around the gap between those two um, lines. I'm not convinced that's happening, but that for me would be the place to really focus energies. And that's where ESG is part of that picture as well, because fundamentally for every new piece of technology, what we should be asking ourselves is, you know, why, why does this further our human aims? Um, and if it doesn't do that, then why are we using it? Um, because there's, there'd be a temptation to adopt lots and lots of these technologies just to keep pace, but without really thinking about what's the human value of them. And that's the key for me. That's the key thing we need to be focused on in the next five years is, is so, how do we close that gap. So behavioralist social psychology concepts and stuff that underpin a lot of that are going to be essential for people to adapt to this or or whatever yeah and also just asking why you know i mean why are we doing this you know so often you know technology is the how that sits at the bottom of the funnel Mm. and to 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 use it to use it sensibly and intelligently we need to have the right why at the top so we need to understand what we're actually trying to do with it uh, to use it effectively and so often people go straight to the how and just plug on lots of new technology that doesn't add value and actually sometimes has a ne- really negative effect. So running parallel to that, you have technology change, mm. you have behavioral change, yeah. <laughs> you have a whole range of issues. Um, sorry, Zofia, I've got to just go through this. I know you're supposed to come in and cut me off. Um, <laughs> but you have a whole range of issues that are sort of impinging on that. So gender equity, racial mm-hmm. equity, mm-hmm. the environment, mental health, all these different things are impinging on that. So it seems like an impossible um, uh, situation. Um, Do you have impossible dreams? Well, but I I think this is where that that point around uh, around undoing our assumptions is really, really important because so much of the data that we'll use to drive decision-making around all of this new technology is based on those false assumptions. So gender inequity, you know, the uh, lack of diversity, all, all of those sorts of things. So, so that's why we really, really need to now think, do I have the right data to make the decision and to, to set rules for the future? Am I making big assumptions that are not valid? And how can I start to challenge that? So great, that's very helpful. So Sophia, okay. Sorry, Sophia, cut in there. We are going over time. Thank you. That was so interesting. It was great. really great. Thank you very much. Very different to what we normally do. So I hope that it's it's been an interesting break to people. Um, I just have the final questions. What would you like the audience to take away today in thirty seconds, Helena? Yeah, um, so very quickly, disruption, we often think of it as negative, but it can be a positive. So really engage with it and leverage it. Um, And then the second thing is uh, thinking is free. So all of these intellectual exercises that we can do, we should be doing more day to day with our teams and our organizations because they will help us to prepare for the change that's coming. And John. Where do I start? Okay, I spent most of my life disrupting. Um, <laughs> and um, um, uh, so I think that uh, uh, Zofia Rakelli and stuff take away from the fact that it's good. <laughs> um, but innovation is really important, but also I think it's really important to respect our core values and what we're trying to achieve as, uh, um, as, as, as people in this society. Uh, so is that okay, Sophia? Do you want me to add yeah. anything more? No, I think that that's. I think it's a really key point is understanding what it is you're trying to achieve, more than anything. 
Um, we have a question from uh, Victoria Townsend. I'm really sorry we're not going to get to it, but please uh, do send that by email, Victoria, and I'll get that answered for you. We can maybe. What's, do your, that. what's your question? It's it's around how to pitch on something, but it's fine. We can do that offline, John. You and I can answer that one offline. Okay. All right. Um, well, thank you, everybody. We will be back next week. We are looking at um, with the, the school's white paper just coming out today. We're looking at education and funding education um, at our next Walk in My Shoes. So have a lovely week. And thank you again, Eleanor, for joining us. Eleanor, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you.